0: The Lord calls us to worship this morning from the book of Psalms, chapter 30. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. O Lord, you have brought my soul up from the grave. You kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment, His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day that you have made, that you have made for us to come here to your house and worship you. Lord, we thank you and praise you that we may call upon you, that you hear us when we pray, and that you receive the praises from our mouths and from our hearts. Lord, may you be pleased with everything that is done here in your house today. May we lift up the name of Jesus alone. And may Jesus receive all the honor, the praise, and the glory for everything that happens. And Lord, we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us. That we would hear and believe the gospel. That as your word is proclaimed through the reading of your word, through the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that we would join our hearts together and rejoice that our names are written in heaven. And Lord, we pray now the prayer that you taught your disciples to pray, saying out loud, This morning for our Confession of Faith, we're going to recite together the Apostles' Creed. It's on page 845 in the Green Hymnal. I'm going to begin by asking you, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His
1: only Son, our
0: Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost,
1: born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate,
0: Amen. Amen. Hear these words of assurance from the book of Psalms, chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season whose leak also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Amen. Let's continue to worship by turning in your hymnal to number 180. Let's sing together, I will sing the wondrous story. children can come forward at this time for the children's sermon.
1: Good
0: morning, boys and girls. Good morning. It's good to see you all. I wanted to share a verse with you this morning and then talk with you about remembrance for just a few moments, okay? About remembrance. This is from Psalm 105, verse 5. It says, Remember His marvelous works which He has done, His wonders, and the judgments of His mouth. In the Bible, to remember is something that's really important. It's not just to remember facts and figures and dates. But a few weeks ago, we talked about remembering how God delivered His people and how you're to keep your eyes open even in your own life for how God works In your life, things that he does for you and for your family. Do you remember the name of the body of water that the children of Israel walked across on dry land? The Red Sea. The Red Sea. That's exactly right. And does anybody remember another body of water that the children of Israel walked across on dry land?
1: The Jordan River. The Jordan
0: River. That's exactly right. And does anybody remember after they crossed over? What did God tell Joshua to tell the children of Israel to do? What were they to take with them? There were twelve of them.
1: The twelve
0: disciples. Not the twelve disciples, but it was twelve. The twelve tribes
1: of Israel. The
0: twelve tribes of Israel. Each of them were to be represented by taking a stone, and in the book of Joshua, it's called a stone of remembrance, a stone of remembrance. And do you know why? Can you think of why? What special word? Maybe they were supposed to... What were they supposed to do because of the stone? What's our special word for today? Remember. They were to remember. They were to remember that God was the one who parted the waters at the Red Sea when the children of Israel walked across. The wonders that God did. They were also to remember when they put their toes on the dry bed of the Jordan River that it was God who did it. He had saved His people. And unfortunately, one of the things about us as fallen people, I read a verse with, uh, with you a couple weeks ago from Ecclesiastes. It said, remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Unfortunately, we are people who don't remember very well. Have you ever had to ask your parents, what did you say again? Mm-hmm. Or have your parents <laughs> heard an answer up there? <laughs> but, um, <laughs> have, have your parents have, ever had to ask you, did you remember what I told you to do? I don't recall is some of the looks I'm getting. I don't remember that. Uh, I don't remember them ever having to tell me again what to do. And Unfortunately, because of our sins, we forget. And not just that we forget chores that we're supposed to do or forget things that our parents tell us, but we actually forget the goodness of God. We forget that He's faithful. We forget that He's good for us. So I want each of you to look down for a minute. I was going to give you something this morning as a reminder. But I want you to look down and look at your right foot. Does everybody have a shoe on? Or at least a sock? Something. I want you to remember, every day this week, when you put on that right shoe, God is faithful to me. He is my Heavenly Father. He takes care of me. He provides for me. Lord, may I not forget you today. Every day when you put on that right shoe, God is with me. And think of the wonders He has done that I might be His child in sending His Son for me. Let me pray for you. Father, I do pray for our covenant children that You would give them memories beyond themselves. That they would know and believe and believe deep in their heart that You are the living God. You are the one who has created them. You have made them for Your glory. Lord, I pray that they would not forget on days when it would be easy to, or in the midst of difficult times or times when you feel far away, Lord, I pray that you would remind them of your goodness and that you would use even something as simple as putting on their shoe tomorrow morning. God is faithful to me. He was yesterday. He will be today. And by His grace, He will be tomorrow. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. This morning for our responsive reading, we're going to be reading out loud together Psalm 117. So please turn in your hymnal to page number 828. Page number 828, Psalm 117. I'll begin with the light portion. Please respond out loud together with the bold. Praise the Lord, all you nations. He so near, all you For great is his love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Let's stand together as we continue to worship and sing hymn number 179 Hallelujah, thine the glory. Morning for our pastoral prayer time. We want to pray for our missionary Andrew Shepherd, who's serving the Lord in the Ukraine. And also, wanted to take a few moments this morning as we pray uh, to pray for families in our church uh, not necessarily only those who have little ones, but also for husbands and wives, uh, for dads and moms, for grandparents, that the Lord would be. Uh, filling us all with His Spirit, that He would be filling our homes, that we would have a sincere love for the Lord and love for one another because of the work that He's done in us. Not anything contrived or made up or anything that we can sort of pull up on our own strength, but something that He puts in us for His glory. Let's pray now together. Father, we thank you for these moments now where we can close our eyes and quiet our minds and our hearts that we might be reminded that as we pray in this room and even in our own rooms at home, that we pray to the God of heaven who sits on the throne, who is high and exalted, the one who is lifted up, who has created all things for his own glory, including us, that our prayers are not just the groanings of those who hope to have help, but are the prayers of people who because of our Heavenly Father know that in Your time and according to Your providence You will answer. Lord, we pray, crying out to You, asking for faith today to believe that. To believe that it's true that You are with us. That You go with us in everything that we do. There's no place that we could go from Your presence. Nowhere that sin could take us. Nowhere that an enemy could take us. Or our deep desires in our hearts could drive us that would be away from you. That anywhere a Christian goes, you go with them. Lord, we pray that this would humble our hearts. That it would cause us to think before we speak. To desire to hear and to listen. To meditate and to understand the mind of Christ in the situations that we're in. Lord, I do pray for families in our church. All of us have a a particular need on our minds in our families that, that really does try us. It causes us to wonder where are the resources to take care of this. And as we look at ourselves, we know we are immediately met with the fact that the resources are not within ourselves. They must come from you to meet our needs, to answer our prayers, to comfort us in our loneliness, to remind us of encouragement when we are down. When we need needs met, Lord, we know our hands must come to you empty. There's nothing that we bring that would be able to bribe anything out of your hands. We come, Lord, giving our sin only. And Lord, we pray that because of the blood of Jesus and because of his perfect sacrifice and sinless life, that you would hear us today as we raise up our voices in prayer and in praise to you. Lord, I do pray for Christian homes represented in this room. That you would be the one filling our homes with your word. That you would cause dads and moms to lead homes in love and faithfulness. That you would cause children to listen and obey, not simply to follow the rules, but because they have a heart that desires to follow hard after you. And Lord, I do pray that you would cause us all together to love one another, to walk in peace with one another here in this church family. And Lord, I pray for Andrew Shepherd, one of our missionaries, that we support, not only with our finances, but also with our prayers. We offer up petitions on his behalf today, Lord, that you would be meeting his needs, that his finances wouldn't be something that keep him up at night, that he wouldn't be worried about where the resources are going to come from. And I pray, Lord, that you would also help him as he works with others to be a strong teammate who can encourage other people, That he would be one who others can look to for strength as they follow the calling that you have given them. And Lord, I pray that you would meet his needs spiritually. That he wouldn't lay aside the important need of spending time with you as he tries to pour out from himself. May he pour from the well that never runs dry. May he pour from the well that you are filling in him. Lord, I pray for each of us now as we we begin to open your word in a few moments as we hear the anthem sung, Lord, I pray that You would cause our hearts to turn to You. Put out the distractions of our mind, the things that have hurried us this week, the things that have distracted us even this morning. Lord, I pray that You would sanctify this time for Your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. your Bibles to the New Testament book of Titus chapter 1, Titus chapter 1 we're going to be reading today verses 10 through 16, Titus chapter 1 verses 10 through 16, this is the word of the Lord, for there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, Especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things they ought not, for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men. Who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Today's sermon is entitled False Teachers and continues our series in the book of Titus called Ordinary Christian Living. If the church was required to pick, say we were taking a vote today, and we're not, but say we were taking a vote today and we were going to pick of two options, which would we choose? Would you say we should pick persecution for naming the name of Christ or enduring false teaching? Which one would we choose? Persecution for naming the name of Christ or having to endure false teaching. Persecution, as we know in the Bible, has the tendency to strengthen believers and many times actually grows the church. We see this even in our own day and in parts of the world where Christians are persecuted, where people suffer for doing exactly what we're doing this morning, who counted a privilege to be named among those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and who many of them fear harm done to them and to their families. But doctrinal corruption leaves people weak in the faith, scattered and confused. It's like a plague that you can't get rid of. In Jesus' kingdom parables in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 26, Jesus tells a parable that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed a field. And while his men who watched the field were asleep, enemies came and they sowed weeds among the wheat that he had just sown. And when harvest time came expecting that a great crop of wheat would be brought in, it was diminished because it was found that weeds had been sown in among. Jesus warns us in this parable that this, this can happen even among his people. So that if false teaching is unopposed in his church, It infiltrates the church itself. And the key moment in this parable, and it's one that I think I probably would have missed had I not had some good study on it myself. The key moment in this parable is when the owner's watchmen are asleep. And they fail to guard the field against those who came to sow the weed seeds. And this is why the New Testament warns leaders over and over again. It's on Paul's heart Stay on guard, be alert, know what God's people are being taught. Paul knew this. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 to 31, when he was speaking with the Ephesian elders, he called them to himself together and said, Stay alert, be on guard, because after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among the church, and they will not desire to spare the sheep, God's people. So it's incumbent upon us as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning to think about this very serious directive that Paul gives to Titus. This is the way he is supposed to handle the situation. He talks about the false teachers, about their identity, their teaching, and their motivation. And he also gives a solution. And lastly, in the moments that we have left this morning, I want to talk about the seriousness of this matter before the Lord. So number one, the false teachers. Who were they? Their identity. It says in verse 10 that there were many of them. Their numbers were significant. It says that they were insubordinate. They were people who did not submit themselves to the authorities that existed in the church at that time. That they were idle talkers and deceivers and that they were of the circumcision. When it says that there were many of them, Philippians chapter 3 verse 18, Paul knew that there were many who opposed him. There were many who opposed the gospel. It says in Philippians 3:18 that many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. This is nothing less than to be against the church, to be against Jesus, to want nothing to do with him. Paul knew there were many who did this. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9, that a great wide door had been opened up to him for the sake of the gospel, and yet he acknowledged the reality. There are many adversaries who do not want me to preach Christ. And Christ crucified. They don't want to hear that they're sinners. They don't want to hear that there's a need for a Savior. And that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life. And that no one comes to the Father except through Him. People want to hear there's another way to go. People want to hear that there's something they can do. Because if I can set my heart to be busy about that, I don't have to live by faith. What Paul was saying is there are many people, even today, who are opposed to to the gospel he said they were insubordinate they were out of line with the authorities that they should have respected and they don't have any respect for authority how else could they teach God's people going house to house teaching them some other gospel except Jesus Christ crucified it says that they were idle talkers and deceivers plainly they talked too much they loved the sound of their own voice. They were happy to hear what they had to say. They were the kind of person who would say in a conversation, well, that's enough about me, but what do you think about me? They're happy to talk. They, they like hearing reports about themselves. They were teachers whose doctrine produces no change in its hearers. We have to be careful what we listen to. Careful to the, to the teachers that we allow to open up God's Word to us. It's a sacred thing. It is His Word. They should not be allowed to twist it or turn it for their own gain. It says that these false teachers were of the circumcision. At least they were a subset of the group who were causing dissension in the church. They must have been Jewish by identity. It refers to a group who held that circumcision has to be a requirement to belong to the kingdom of God. So that's their identity. That's who Paul says they are. Secondly, at their teaching, it says in verse 10 that they were of the circumcision, and verse 14 says that they taught Jewish fables and commandments of men. That these were just some of the things that the people of God heard. When it says they were of the circumcision, this does identify that they were Jewish, but also identifies them as part of a group of people who said, You have to add something to Jesus. He's not enough. Faith in Jesus isn't enough. How are you going to point to that? How are you going to point to Jesus doing something and that be enough to let you into heaven? How can you be part of the family of God? And yet in Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem council, which would have been about 20 years prior to Titus receiving this letter when Paul wrote it. In fact, actually, Titus was there it says that in, in Galatians, that while Titus was there, not even he, hearing the arguments about circumcision and about Gentiles needing to be circumcised in order to be part of the family of God, not even Titus, according to Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, not even Titus was convinced, I have to do this. It's necessary. I've got to add something to my faith in order to be part of the family of God. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul wrote... Even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, let him be accursed. If we preach anything but Jesus and him crucified as the only satisfaction for the wrath of God and the holiness of God, then let them be accursed. If circumcision or anything can be added to the finished work of Jesus on the cross, then you are sacrificing, knowing it or not you are sacrificing the great doctrine that the reformers, that our Christian heritage sees many of its faith fathers and mothers in who died for the sake of saying that justification is by faith alone. The Word of God teaches that. It's plain throughout. It says that they taught Jewish fables and commandments of men. He's not here speaking about discrediting the Old Testament. You've got to remember... Paul was a Jew. He wouldn't have said the Old Testament doesn't matter or that was for those people, but God has a different plan for us now. He's talking about genealogies and myths and traditions of men and man-made rules, things that people added to the Gospel in order to say this is how you demonstrate real righteousness. This is what it means to really be a Christian. If you really want to belong to the family of God, these are the things that you have to do. But Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, speaking of people like this, people who would teach these things, that they have a form of godliness. It looks right on the outside. It would look Christian to you if you saw it. But it denies the power of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. In Matthew chapter 15, the scribes and the Pharisees drew near to Jesus. And they wanted to know, why do your disciples not wash their hands before they eat, as is the tradition of the elders? And Do you know how Jesus responded? He responded and said, wait a minute. Why do you subvert the commandment of God and observe the traditions of men? How can you just look at the commandment of God and walk away from it, add your own rules, and then claim to be closer to God than everyone else? Why would you want to put your thumb on the people of God and tell them they can't be close to Him unless they do this? How could you add to the commandments of God? How could you do that to God's people? How could you hurt families? It says in the passage that we read that it was subverting whole households. It means that there were men and women and boys and girls who believed they were following God because they listened to these false teachers and they led families away from following the one true God. They bound their consciences in ways that God's Word said they never should be. And so Paul takes it very seriously. He tells them, you can't follow these people. So what's their motivation? Why are they doing this? In verse 11 it says at least one of their motivations is dishonest gain. At least some of them, maybe not all, but at least some of them were charlatans. They used clever words and had good speaking skills, but they only sought to win a hearing for themselves. They loved hearing their own voices and wanted to tip the scales in the discussions that were happening in their own favor. And perhaps they were really only concerned with lining their own pockets. And many of us know what this kind of thing is, even today. People who preach a health, wealth, kind of prosperity gospel, that if you love Jesus and you want to hear the gospel continue to go forth and you believe in the kingdom of God, then send us a check. Or even better, just set us up on a monthly payment that just drafts out of your account. Support this ministry and the kingdom of God will grow. And all the while, the only thing that they are hoping for Is that their bank accounts will grow. They're not concerned about the kingdom of God. And certainly not concerned about God's people. And their conscience before the Lord. Romans chapter 16 verse 17 says. Now I urge you brethren. note those who cause divisions and offenses. Contrary to the doctrine which you learned. And avoid them. Avoid the, the teachings. But also avoid the people who would seek to subvert the commandments of God. Who would subvert the word of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 6. But we command you brethren in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. And not according to the tradition which he received from us. What he's saying is. And these are strong words. These are very strong words. It's a grave situation. When people teach one thing that's against the Word of God, and their lives don't match up to the form of holiness in the Bible, it's a grave thing before the living God. And it's also a grave thing before the people of God. If your life doesn't match up to the Scripture, it's one thing. It's another thing to teach that this other form of godliness is real, and then to live that way in front of other people. It's almost as if to say, to throw your hand in God's face and say, you can keep your hands off of me. May we never be that kind of people. So the false teachers, that's number one. So number two, Paul's solution. And maybe you can already guess what the solution is based on what we've already read in this passage and what we've read and studied the last few weeks. What's Paul's solution for false teachers? At least one of the solutions is to have elders in the churches. If you look back at verse 9, he says that elders are to hold fast to the faithful word as they have been taught, that they may be able by sound doctrine, not by shouting, not by smooth words, not by charisma, not by anything else, but by the word of God, sincere, sound doctrine, people who know their Bibles, who know the Scriptures. And yes, an elder is one who is to be apt to teach. But what it means is that an elder will be able to, because of his knowledge of the Scriptures, to be able to rely on that knowledge according to the power of the Holy Spirit and be able to dispute those who would teach something that's false. Something that might look and sound 95% right, but that other 5% that's wrong, that's what Paul is getting at here. The elders are responsible to do this in the church. If false teaching creeps in, the elders stand up as shepherds. John Calvin said that a good shepherd, a good elder in the church will have two voices. One to encourage and gather in the flock of God's people. And another to keep out the wolves. And one of the great distinctions that an elder has to make is to know the difference. When to use which voice. It's not a lot different than shepherding your own children. Knowing the difference. And they're all different, aren't they? If you have more than one child, you know that discipline is never always the same with one or the other. Sometimes it requires a soft touch. Sometimes it requires a look So each situation is different. And that's what Paul is saying about dealing with discipline in the church. The elders are to be the ones who hold fast to the faithful word. It says in verse 13, and and I have tiptoed around this all week, trying to think of how to explain this in a loving way. Because it would seem as though, and I have the place to say it here. It would seem as though the elders have the power in the church. And so whenever they hear something that they don't like... They can do exactly what Paul says in verse 13. Rebuke them sharply. Silence it. You're an elder. If you don't like what's being said, then you take care of it. But as we hold the word of God open with humility in our hearts, this is only a small portion of what an elder does in the church. And may it never be that we have to do it here. In verse 11, he says, their mouths must be stopped. They're subverting whole households. They're causing people to stray away from the true, sincere doctrine of God's Word. In a healthy church, the elders will more frequently engage in the ministry of encouragement than they will in this kind of ministry. If you are an elder because you're hoping or looking for a fight, it's probably not the right kind of thing for you to do. This is if you were to break it down in percentages. Your ministry, our ministry as elders in this church is 90% encouragement. Love and growth and grace and being there to comfort people. Remind them of God's Word. Help them to see that God is beautiful and wonderful and that Jesus is there for them in every moment that they have in their family. In everything that they do, in every day that they wake up, He is with them and for them. His promises are real. To not forget that He's there. But this is a small 10%. Not to demonstrate our authority, but the Lord Jesus is in the church. That teaching and conduct not in line with what Jesus commanded has to be corrected. It can't be left unchecked. Action must be decisive for the sake of God's people. For people that you know. For children who are listening and watching and and wondering. Well, that doesn't sound right. And who's supposed to say anything about it in the church? Or why isn't someone saying something about it in the church? Why does it... Get allowed to just keep going on and on and on. Some must have thought that what they were being taught was uplifting and it was misleading. And that's why Paul says to Titus, you've got to cause them to shut their mouths. It's that strong. They can't be allowed to spread this anymore. If you still have your Bible open, go over to Second Timothy chapter three. Second Timothy chapter three. I said that the way that Paul said they were to take care of bad teaching was through the Word of God by sound doctrine. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. He's speaking a word as if it was reading off of the newspaper today. There are churches and entire generations of people who have gone to church who believe they were following the living God. But they were following through traditions of men. Nothing more than what someone else handed down that sounded right. May it never be that that happens here. May it never be that Lebanon ever walks away from the Word of God. May we read it and hide it in our hearts and may we stand for it even if the culture shouts at us, you can't. May we be faithful to the Lord before the Lord to say all the counsel of God's Word. But then he says his solution, part of his solution, is that they would be stopped from speaking these false things. But notice what he says in verse 13. There's a ray of hope. That they may be sound in the faith. And note the definite article there the faith. It's like the the phrase the truth. It's a definite article, not a pronoun. I had to be reminded there's no such thing as my truth or your truth or that's fine for you in the church of God. It absolutely is absolute. God's word is or it isn't. We submit to it or we don't, and we don't get to pick and choose. It's not a buffet. You can't leave out the vegetables if you don't want them today. You have to take them. You have to take all of them. That they may be sound in the faith. This is a fact. It's an exclusive truth claim. What is believed in the church is no less important than that people believe. It's one thing in our culture to say, I believe in Jesus, or I believe that He died on the cross. It's another thing to say, I believe that He died for me, and His precious blood was spilled for me, and that my sins are forgiven And I am hidden in Christ. It's another thing totally to say that. And then to say to someone lovingly, I believe, according to the Bible, according to God's Word, that unless you bow the knee to Jesus, you are a sinner destined for hell. There will be a day when that is hate speech in our country. But it's the truth. It's the truth that people need to hear. They are dealing with guilt in their soul, and they don't know where to go with it. So they run everywhere trying to find a place to salve it. And they want someone to tell them that the things that they want and the things that they do are okay. And if somebody says my desires are okay, then I have no reason to deal with this guilt anymore. And I can walk away from it. And that's why people are running away from the church in some cases. Because it's not being told to them by the truth. I can be who I am. I can be who I want to be. And Jesus will accept me. That can't be the truth. Jesus died to make us holy. He died to make us His children. It can't be that Jesus loves me and leaves me the way that I am. He loves me and changes me from the inside out. Not just in in good looking clothes and, and nice phrases and language with people. That's kind and gentle. But He also changes me such that my desires are no longer what I used to desire. And the things that I want now are Him and for His people and love for His people and His church. Everything about me has changed. He's saying that there must be an inner fortitude and a sincerity of heart to do this. The goal of church discipline then, in other words, is devotion to the truth of God. The goal of discipline is not winning, but wholeness in the gospel. Flourishing in the truth. That's the desire for your elders, for you. When we pray for you, yes, we do pray for your prayer requests and the things that are heavy on your heart that are going on in your family that you've shared for prayer. But we also pray that the Lord Jesus would be exalted in your heart. That His Word would be precious to you. That it would be what holds you. We said last week, He will hold me fast. We pray that God will hold you fast in life's storms. Not as a sentiment but because we believe that Jesus is the anchor of our souls. And when everything is moving, including you and your family, everything is moving and the world around you. Jesus is firm. He is the firm foundation. And His Word is the foundation He gives to us to see Him in it. So the goal of discipline is that God's people would flourish in the truth. And it requires humility. Humility not just for the person receiving it, Or maybe if an elder came and spoke to you or the elders asked to meet with you, it would take some humility to hear what they had to say. But it also takes humility on the part of the elders. Have you ever gone to someone and said, it looks like this is not right in your life. I see this happening in your life and it doesn't line up with Scripture. And I'm coming to you in in the most humble way I know to be able to say, I do want to win you to Christ. And I'm saying to you, I know as a sinner, except by the grace of God, there go I. If you can hear that and see it with tears in the other person's eyes out of love for you and you say, no, I don't want anything to do with this. May it never be for God's people. Lastly, I want to speak just for briefly a few moments about the seriousness of the matter of church discipline and what he's speaking about here. This is God's people. These are not people outside of the church. He says these are people in the church who are doing this. They're subverting or trying to subvert the sincerity of the Word of God and the purity of the Gospel. And I, I wrote this in quotes in my notes. Handle with care. Handle with care. Extra grace required. After all, we are one another in the church. But isn't it true that when you're a hammer, everything else is a nail? Anytime you need to take care of something, if, if all you see around you is nails, you will pummel people with it's going, to, it's going to happen. James chapter 1, verse 19. My beloved brethren, let everyone be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. The Lutheran German theologian Meldenius wrote in the 16th century, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. And I guess the point I'm trying to get to is that discipline is not for matters of personal preference or interpersonal differences. Discipline is for the sake of the glory of God, for the sake of the peace and purity of His church. And it's no wonder now, looking at this, as we looked at the qualifications for an elder, that self control would have to be required. And why there is a benefit and a blessing in the Presbyterian form of church government that there is a plurality of the elders. There's no one person in the church here at Lebanon who they say something and everybody else just follows, me included. You have a plurality of elders and there are men who sit in the room and pray for wisdom as decisions are made. And may we go together to God's people with the decision. That's how it has to be done. It's how it will be done. And lastly, a word about when this doesn't happen in the church. From Numbers chapter 16 and the rebellion of Korah. We won't turn there and read it. But in Numbers chapter 16, there was a group of people that Korah had gone to and he had spoken to. And he went around to the different tents of God's people and he said, I don't know what's going on, but it seems like Moses and Aaron are on a power trip. It seems like they think that they're a step above the rest of us. And so they go, Korah and 250 other people, and they go to Moses and Aaron and they say, why are you setting yourselves up like princes? And he basically makes the argument for the priesthood of the believer. We all have access to God. We can all go. Why can't we go into that special tent that you go into? That the presence of God descends upon when you go and worship. And so there is a bit of a showdown that happens. And on that day, 250 people died at the altar of the Lord as they stood there with incense urns in their hands. And there were three camps of people, Korah and two others, and their entire families. It says in Numbers chapter 16 that the earth opened, and they were consumed, and it was closed up. Moses said, this is a new thing that God does. And it was a sign of judgment. And he wasn't saying, see, I'm special, I can call down miracles from heaven. He was saying, no, God ordained the priesthood. I didn't choose it for myself. He even asked him, who is Aaron to you? God chose him. Why do you have a beef with Him? And actually He told them, your beef is with God. You have a problem with Him. You don't like His order. You don't like the way He does things. You don't have a problem with me. There could be another face here and you'd still be upset, is what Moses was saying. And the, the risk and the issue there is that if there are a bunch of people who agree on the same thing, it doesn't make it right. Numbers don't equal truth. They don't. Just because there are loud voices and just because there are many voices doesn't mean that God authorizes it. 250 people died that day and learned a lesson. And the people of God saw it and they feared. And you wouldn't believe it, but the next day the people all got together and went to Moses and Aaron and said, You killed God's people. They still didn't believe that it was Him who did it. So my prayer and my heart for us as a church family, for our elders and for myself, is that we would be faithful to the Word of God, submitting to Him and to no one else, hoping and believing in Him and in His promises, loving and shepherding God's people, because He's placed us here for such a time as this, no matter the consequences. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your church, for Your people, and we thank You for Your Word that You richly give to us. And Lord, I pray that You would help us today to remember with hearts full of faith and to heed the warnings that we hear in the Scriptures, to hear the woes, to hear the promises and the blessings that we wouldn't lightly lay them aside as they come from Your mouth. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and we pray that You would help us to hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand together as we respond to the Word of God by singing hymn number 347, The Church's One Foundation. we thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to give now back to you a portion of what you have so richly blessed our families with. We pray that you would take our tithes and offerings as we give them to you today as a sweet-smelling savor, as an offering of our worship to you. Lord, we pray that you would use them for the sake of the spread of the gospel, that the name of the Lord Jesus would be beautiful and great among your creation, and that you would use it to bring in those who belong in your family. benediction of our Lord. Now may the Lord, who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and rich in steadfast love and mercy, keep you from despair in all of your troubles and keep you from idolatry in all of your joys. Amen.